Welcome to Writer Writer Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. We also cover craft, the agent hunt, query trenches, publishing industry, marketing, and more. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at mindymcginnis.com. And make sure to visit the Writer Writer Pants on Fire blog for additional interviews, query critiques, and more at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. We are here with Lynn Forney, who is the author of Choosing Survival, How I Endured a Brutal Attack and a Lifetime of Trauma Through the Power of Action, Choice, and Self-Expression. So I want to talk to you about quite a few different things uh, here today. Of course, I want to talk about your experience and what happened to you trauma upon trauma uh, after your initial experience and then the process of recovery and then also writing about that. So why don't you just start by telling us about choosing survival, what happened to you and why you chose to write about it? First of all, thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I was attacked when I was 21 years old. I woke up with a man next to me. He started stabbing me. I was stabbed seven times and I lost approximately 21 pints of blood. That experience alone was traumatic enough, but I was on life support for quite a few days. Mm-hmm. And when I got off life support, I was being somewhat accused of possibly stabbing myself. And that was shocking and horrifying. Um, I had experienced pretty severe depression a couple of years prior to this. So I understand they have to look at all the angles, but the facts would never have led anyone, I think, to believe that. But the police department Years later, came out that they were covering up crimes. Janet Reno did an investigation, the Boca Raton Police Department, years later. Having this happen to me and then not being believed has led to years of trying to recover from that. Victim shaming on top of that, not only are you possibly lying, but did you do this to yourself? I had to take a lie detector test. and I kept looking at the guy like, this is impossible. And he's like, no, people have done this to themselves. I'm like, I don't think so. When did this happen? May of 1998. Okay. So I was about the same age in the 90s. I would like to believe that something like that would not happen today, that uh, if you were subjected to a violent attack, you would not then have to not only recover from your attack, but also uh, take a lie detector test to prove that you had, in fact, been attacked. I still question what was worse, getting attacked or not being believed. Well, and it becomes a question, too, I'm sure... You'd already experienced some effects of mental health issues. Depression is obviously something that can really mess you up. And I think to mm. have that additional layer of, of other people questioning you in a pretty intense manner, I'm sure only exacerbated the situation. Question like, what's wrong with me? Why did this happen to me? And why are people treating me this way? What is wrong with me? Definitely. Absolutely. So what led you to want to write about this? When I would start to get into the story shortly after this happened, seeing people's facial expressions and reactions, I would just kind of be like, I know this is so also crazy. I just write a book. I just write a book one day. I wasn't convinced I would do it, but I've always wondered like, what can I do with this? There's got to be something I can do to help other people. I can sit there and be in, in the victimhood of like, why did this happen? Why did this happen? Or I can choose to do something about it. I think with COVID, obviously, we all had to stay inside and lives changed quite a bit dramatically. And um, for me, it meant that my performing arts life, that kind of slowed down quite a bit. And so I just kind of delved into like different mindset classes and courses. And then I ended up taking vocal lessons. She also was a coach and had a small coaching container. And so I joined that and 
kind of one thing led to another with that small container. I wrote a poem that did end up in the book. And I read that to the group and getting their reactions was enough to be like, you know what, maybe this is the time for me to start writing this book. So then I wrote the very first chapter. Maybe I have something, maybe there's something here and I can kind of continue and actually just finally put this into a book. So many people used COVID as a really good jumping in point to do Mm -hmm. some things that they had always wanted to, but never really had the opportunity or the time. And COVID kind of opened that up. So I offer editorial services as part of what I do here at Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire. And my inbox really blew up during and then here tapering off after COVID. I've had uh, so many people reaching out to me with projects that they finally found the time to work on or had the opportunity to work on. And then I've also heard, of course, plenty of other people having an opposite experience where they just kind of shut down or mentally Mm. COVID was too much for them. Maybe some of that groundwork that you had done before about choosing to take an action might have helped you be a little bit more proactive throughout COVID as well. Absolutely. I mean, I've I've never doubted that I have chosen constantly to try my best to thrive, right? Certainly there's days and time periods. Maybe I didn't do as great of a job, but I think I chose that I would not let this event or this man just completely take over my life. And I've always kind of gone back to that. It's like, no, I'm not going to let this event just completely shut me down. I'm going to continue doing what I want to do. I'm trying to try to move forward and certainly kind of weaving in lots of healing and therapy and all that throughout. But that's always been a part of me, I think, too, just to kind of like, I'm going to take action. If something like, say, disappointing happens, I might take a few days to kind of shut down and sulk and cry and stay in bed. But then I'm going to be like, all right, what am I going to do now? I'm a fixer too. I have to go and do something and take action in order to feel like I am preventing something worse happening or improving upon where we are. I am a doer and a fixer. Sometimes things aren't fixable. Not all things, certainly. I can get caught in um, anxiety loops pretty easily. Mm -hmm. I'm going to fix this and I am going to do everything I can about this. And it might not be within my power to fix um, or it may not actually be a problem. I may have decided there was a problem or created a problem. And then I'm trying to fix something that was never wrong in the first place, which is an impossible situation. Talk to me a little bit then about your recovery And the different methods that you use, because trauma is something that I think a lot of people don't want to own that word because they feel like it's reserved for someone that has been in war or someone that has almost Mm -hmm. died or someone that has witnessed a death or lost a loved one in a tragic or violent way. So obviously you had a, a very serious violent attack, but I do see people sometimes resisting using the word trauma for things that have happened to them, they don't feel actually earn the label, even though they might be suffering from the symptoms. So if you could talk a little bit about how you kind of came to terms with what happened and then like your steps forward. I just had this conversation with my coach actually about trauma and she lost her like life partner and she still didn't consider herself having trauma. So I think that's really common. And so many things can create trauma in our brain. And again, like you want to think that, oh, I'm stronger than that or that's not a big deal. And even for me, I could find myself saying, well, I was stabbed, but I didn't have that happen or didn't have this happen. Like still, I wasn't worthy of having trauma. So I totally understand that. But I think we all have trauma to some degree. It is important to look at it and kind of figure it out because it affects our day-to-day lives, whether we want to own it or not. 
one of my kind of go-tos is I just avoid. I'm like, I don't need to feel that. I don't need to deal with that. I'm just going to go over here. And that's maybe the downside of the doing and the fixing, right? Because you don't look at the other stuff over here. So, I mean, I did go to therapy. I had a therapist when I went back to college and then I kind of didn't for a little while, even though looking back, I probably should have. And then for a long time, I just kept trying to like go do dance. I'm going to go do this. I'm going to try to do that. And finally about I would say about 16 years after this happened is when I found the trauma therapist. And that was really the turning point for me for really understanding and delving way deeper into the trauma. So I did EMDR with her. But even I have to say like years after that, I had trauma come up, responses that I didn't expect. Yeah, I've tried tapping EMDR, multiple therapists, because I just wasn't willing to give up on myself or my life. Trauma responses are really interesting. I only recently started to realize that I also have some some trauma responses that I mm-hmm. wasn't expecting kind of resurfaced for a bunch of different reasons very suddenly knocked me all the way off my tracks, right? And I am self-aware enough to be like, okay, something is wrong. Like I'm reacting mm-hmm. very strongly to this. And I I recognize that I am and I know what I'm reacting to, so it's like this was the trigger. I am looking at my reaction and saying, okay, you're being ridiculous, but also <laughs> I still feel this way, right? Like I mm-hmm. can't, yeah. I can't logic myself out of this. So you know that this made you feel like this, but there's no reason for that. So why mm-hmm. do you feel this way? And then picking, 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 picking until there's just a heap of unknitted butters in front of you. And it's just <laughs> okay. now I have overthought everything and I am exhausted and I still feel the right. same. I didn't realize that I had at least elements of, if not full-blown, CPTSD. My therapist was like, dude, this is what's going on. (laughs) And yes, like you do have this similar to you. I would be like, well, this happened to me, Mm -hmm. but also the Holocaust. So I don't. (laughs) And it could be a symptom of being women too. We do tend to trivialize our own suffering sometimes. Yeah, I totally agree with that because we're taught to not speak up and or get angry or you're being crazy or you're being a woman, right? Or it's that time of the month or whatever. You understand how the brain works too. Like the way I was explained, this is very rudimentary, but if you have a circle or a loop that your brain is supposed to go through any event and it kind of gets stopped, you'll sort of keep going back to that spot over and over again in your brain because you haven't finished that loop out. That helped me understand it. Like, okay, I keep getting stuck. And anytime anything is reminding me or my body of that experience, it keeps going to that spot. And then I get re-traumatized. And logically, I understand. Like, I'm safe. I'm here. I'm sitting in this chair. Your body and your subconscious don't know the difference. It's like, no, no, we're experiencing that same thing over and over again. I um, ended up learning a lot about my amygdala. And and (laughs) the reptile is driving the train fight, flight, or freeze. And I was um, kind of in that constant trauma response yeah. for a while. And, yeah. um, and that wears you out, like physically, oh, yeah. mentally, constant. What do I need to do? Do I need to run? Do I need to hide? Do I need to punch someone? Not great for your social relationships. Right? <laughs> yeah. I had a really wild experience after all this therapy that I literally had shut down. Like I witnessed these two men punching each other in the street, which is not great as, as it was, but I was driving and I kind of was like, do I call the police? Do I try to help? I don't know what to do. So also my fight or flight was like, escape, get out, get out, get out. 
they broke up and then I was going to dance rehearsal and I got in there and I started telling people like these guys were fighting and I don't know if I should do something about it. And I just felt like all of a sudden everything inside of me just started shaking and I started crying. I don't know what's going on. And I had to just go to the bathroom and I literally just sat in the corner and like shook and cried and had to call my husband. And I was like, and I knew I'm here at rehearsal. I am safe. I'm in this bathroom. Like nothing is going to harm me. But for an hour, a full hour, I could not stop shaking and crying. And it was really confusing and also kind of embarrassing, if I'm going to be honest. Like I felt like all these people were judging me because nobody knew really what happened to me. Confusing is really the best word I can describe because I'm like, it's it's been all these years. I've done all this work. Like what is going on? But that kind of led to me creating a a solo about it. Like I, I did a dance solo about it. And that's how I kind of transformed that experience into something that hopefully, again, could help someone that was in the audience and me process it. Specifically, I wanted to talk to you about EMDR because I know that this is something that I myself have used before and am currently using. I have found it helpful. I have talked to a lot of people that use it and have had differing experiences. And I know that you are a proponent of it. So if you could talk a little bit about, first of all, what EMDR is, and then talk to me about how it has been useful to you. EMDR is um, a type of therapy that essentially gets your subconscious brain to come forward, come into more of the conscious brain. You generally use like a, like a rapid eye movement that for me made me really nauseous. So I had to close my eyes and my therapist tapped on my knees. I will say, first of all, like you have to get a really trusting connection to your therapist before you even try this. So I just want to say if anyone's thinking about it, to know that going into it. She had me try to visualize going through like a boat, calm my brain down, my body down, and kind of visualize going into this safe, really safe place that I could always re- like return to. And then um, she kind of had me go into like a cave and like turn on a TV and try to like get things kind of deep that I had repressed on this TV screen. And like that didn't work for me initially. So I kind of just had to kind of keep going deeper, but it's, it's really wild and odd, but really powerful. And I'm sure everyone's experience is a little bit different. So it's hard for me. That was mine, but I would feel all these weird sensations in my body. Like I would suddenly feel like my legs were like lead, but my upper half was like floating all around the ceiling. I definitely dug some stuff up that I think I've always known was there from very young childhood, but, and I couldn't get it fully in my memory, like a, like a movie, but I definitely had more information than I had before. And that was kind of terrifying at first. And then every week would go a little bit deeper and try to bring it up again to my conscious memory. But it was a way to, to understand and process and say like, yes, this did happen to me. And this has been with me my whole life. And I just, I couldn't remember it. I never understood like why I had these, these certain re- reactions or why I got so depressed or anything like that. So it kind of helped me understand, okay, like these things happened to me at a very young age. And then I've had all these compound traumas on top of it. So I had a better understanding of my brain and my re- reactions and my responses and maybe why it was certain ways that I was. My understanding of how EMDR works. You were talking earlier about those cycles and those neural pathways that travel and you travel and you travel and you'll get stuck or there'll be something that um, basically hasn't moved into your long-term memory. It's still hanging out on those short-term circuits and that's your Mm -hmm. your trauma. And uh, the whole idea, my understanding behind EMDR is that your therapist and you're right. You do have to be comfortable with your therapist and have a trusting relationship because they ask you to revisit things that are upsetting. Mm -hmm. Try to really, in some ways, put yourself back there to some extent 
And mm-hmm. while you're there or while you're re-experiencing these things, we use uh, clappers that you hold on to mm-hmm. and they vibrate. Mm-hmm. The idea is that it forces your brain to do left, right, rapid switching yes. mm-hmm. as if your eyes were in REM sleep. And yeah. your brain does the work of moving memories into long-term storage while you're in REM. And that's why one of the reasons why REM is so important. And so the idea is that if you can access these memories or these moments or these traumas while your therapist is helping you simulate brain activity of REM, that it will begin to move these things into your long term where that can just kind of dissipate and be weakened, essentially. But yeah, you're finishing that loop, basically. You're, you're completing yeah. the loop that should have happened. You're literally to your body and your subconscious, you're experiencing the exact same trauma yeah. as if it was happening right then and there. Yeah. Um, so it basically helps you finish out that loop through your neural pathways, your brain, so that you're not continually kind of getting triggered and responding in the same way. I've had some interesting physical sensations. You were talking about mm-hmm. legs being heavy and your your top half feeling light. I have had certainly not a, a tingling or or anything like that, but I have just suddenly been aware of the back of my brain. I haven't necessarily felt it in any sense that there's a sensation, but I'm just like, oh, it's there. I'm just like more conscious of it during EMDR and then for a little bit afterwards. I asked my therapist, I was like, is this something that other people have reported? And she said she has one other client who says she feels like a tickling almost at the base of her brain when, when she's doing EMDR. Yeah, I definitely remember all kinds of weird sensations like that. Like my head was a balloon and floating around. It was really strange. But she also explained to me too that I dissociated like all the time. Like I was living in a constant state of dissociation, which I didn't fully know. And I wasn't like to the point where I'm like different people. She kind of explained there's like five stages until you get to the point where you have multiple personalities. In other words, you can get up to stage four, but you're constantly in a stage one or two. Mm -hmm. And kind of after that process, she could even tell like, she's like, your eyes are brighter. You're more forward in your body. Mm. And it's hard to explain if you haven't experienced that, but it's like, I could feel more present. Like I'm more present than I ever have been. And it wasn't like I wasn't aware or didn't know. Again, it's a hard thing to describe to people who've never experienced it. But I would often feel like if I was starting to talk about something with a prior therapist that was difficult, my head would kind of start feeling balloony. Or like I would be laying in the bed and I would suddenly feel like I was about three feet above my body, even though Mm -hmm. I was still in my body. Mm -hmm. Things like that would have those weird sensations. So when she explained that to me, I was like, oh, that makes sense. And so it just – if you're not fully present, you're not experiencing life the way you should be, right? Yeah. And some of these side effects and symptoms are things that – are almost impossible to explain. I uh, very recently this past summer, I went off a uh, SNRI that I had been on mm-hmm. for about 15 years. And, oh, wow. Oh, it was terrible. The withdrawal process was horrible. And the disassociation was strong, really scary. I knew what was going on and everyone in my family and my close friends, like they knew that I was uh, weaning off of a antidepressant and that things were going to get funky. And, and so people mm-hmm. were... People were helpful and everybody was watching out for me. And, and that was very useful and it was good. Yeah. But um, when you are living in a constant space of not being able to trust yourself and even your own perceptions of yourself, it is extremely difficult to move through the day. Like I would have moments of completely blacking out and this would be like two seconds. But I remember being in a dance class, something I really enjoy. And then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm back. I don't know where I went. 
but I left. And so just weird experiences like that. Then you're like, well, is this going to happen all the time? Is this a normal thing? And so, yeah, you're constantly in this a little bit of a state of worry. Again, that fight or flight is getting just amped up. Well, now I don't know if I'm going to just suddenly leave. It was always like little snippets, but I was aware that it happened. And again, I'm doing something I enjoy. So what's going on? One of the things you talk about in your book is learning how to shift your energy out of low energy or negativity or shifting your focus and especially mood swings and like difficulty managing where your energy is, focusing on negativity and things like that. Mm -hmm. I think it's particularly for writers that would be a very useful skill set because we do tend to be emotional people and- (laughs) A lot of us tend to be a lean a little more towards the melancholy. Talk a little bit about like some tips and tricks for shifting your energy and helping to relocate where that is being directed. There's a few things that I have learned. Things that can shift your energy the most are movement, breath, and sound. So something that's simple you can try is literally just to like turn on a silly song and dance around to it. Even if you're like not in the mood, singing along to it is even better. So that can be just a really quick, effective way, like a few minutes of that. Breath is always helpful to shift. There's many, many breathing patterns you could do, but just trying to get like the deepest breath you can, inhaling for four counts, holding for four counts and exhaling for six counts. If you do that 10 times in a row, that can really shift some things. Just getting up and stretching, moving, doing some twists, doing some squats. It sounds like it's too easy, but those little things can really shift. And then for negativity and thought patterns, the most powerful thing I did was I met kind of a shadow part of myself and she's a very domineering, unforgiving woman named Betty. I did it through an NLP session, which is kind of another way to get to your subconscious. Meeting her and kind of like giving her a persona, giving her an outfit, able to be like, all right, Betty, like I hear you and I know you're here to protect me because that's what they do, right? They're here to protect you. Like, okay, remember that time in third grade you got made fun of? Well, we don't want that to happen again. So we're going to make sure that you don't put yourself out there that same way. So if you write this book and you put it out there and everyone's going to laugh at you, that kind of thing. So I could be like, all right, Betty, I see you. I hear you. Thank you for being here. I know you're trying to protect protect me, but I've got this. There are days where I'm just really sad. I've done all those things. EFT tapping, that's a really great one too, to to move energy, by the way. I'm just going to let this sadness be here instead of constantly trying to avoid it or escape it because that's what would keep it there longer for me. I'm just going to accept this. I'm going to invite this in. I'm just going to accept that I'm sad. I'm going to accept that I don't know why. And that's okay, because that for a long time too drove me crazy. (laughs) Like, it's a sad day. I'm just going to be sad with myself. I'm going to curl up with a teddy bear, love myself that way, and know that tomorrow is a new day. And again, that sounds so trite in some ways, but it really is. And usually that will do the trick. The next day, I'll have a different outlook. I'll have a little bit different mood. I'll wake up a little bit different. So instead of just constantly trying to fight it, like, no, I don't feel the sadness and shoving it down and shoving it down, it's going to come up. It's going to come out. It's going to come up. I take naps and I have only in the past maybe five or six years been able to do the, hey, you feel this way right now. You're not going to feel this way in a little bit. Right Mm -hmm. now is bad. Yeah. A little bit will be better. And you don't want to wait for that in a little bit to get here and be conscious. You just go take a nap. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) I'm extremely lucky in that I'm a full-time writer. I work from home. I'm my own boss. I absolutely realize that, you know, I have the wealth of time to be able to say, Mm -hmm. I'm going to take a nap. And, yeah. and nobody can stop me and I'm in charge of myself, right? So right, I right. absolutely recognize the privilege and being like, you know what? Time out, taking a nap. I was always someone that poo-pooed meditation. That's dumb and it doesn't work. <laughs> um, 
I really landed pretty strongly on that for a really long time. And then just mm-hmm. recently, within the past, like maybe six months, I uh, downloaded the Headspace app because I went mm-hmm. off of my, my depression medication. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I was like, all right, what am I going to do to add another support here? Because I need yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. I ended up um, using that Headspace app and it did help tremendously. So I, I have become a convert to breathing and meditation and exercise. Now, I've always been an athlete. I've always been aware of how much that benefits me, just physically and mentally and emotionally. And I go to the gym like every evening. The distinct difference between how I feel after a workout, I'm awake, I'm present. And I know that exercise is like the hardest thing to do when you're not there. If you would just work out, you would feel better. And it's like, that's the last thing. (laughs) that I yeah. can do right now. Like that is actually impossible for me. And I totally understand that. Taking a walk, even taking your doggo is something just moving a little bit can be so beneficial. And that's why I say like, just do two minutes of, of just jumping and dancing around because I, I would get stuck in like, I, if I'm going to work out, it has to be an hour. It has to be hardcore. It has to be this. It has to be that. Right. Especially if you're a perfectionist and you're hard on yourself. But I think when you're in those really deep, dark places, and I've been there where I couldn't get out of bed for six weeks. So just getting into the shower can make a huge difference. Something about yeah. water is very healing. Add like an essential oil of like eucalyptus or something, you know, put a few drops in the shower and just get in the shower. That can change your whole day. If you've never experienced this, you're like, what? That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I can understand where some people would think that. But if you've ever been in the depths of it, like just getting into the shower or crying in the shower is very healing too. Even in those moments where you're just in the depths of it, that that can feel really hard too. I've had those stretches of, I'm going to lay in bed now. You smell bad and your sheets smell bad. And I drooled in my sleep and my pillowcase stinks, right? I am a piece of shit, right? Yeah, right. And if you get up and you take a shower, just smelling better, we're going to wash all the sheets. Even if I go back to bed after I do those things, I feel better because my environment is changed and the environment is a little more healthy and I have taken some proactive steps and I don't smell bad and my bed doesn't smell bad. A little bit of healing in that. Yeah, absolutely. Last thing, why don't you let listeners know where they can find you online and where they can find the book, Choosing Survival? Yeah, I have a website, lynnforney.com. And you can email me at choosingsurvival at gmail.com. And my book currently is on Amazon. And it's available on Kindle, paperback and hardback currently. Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis. Music by Jack Corbel. Don't forget to check out the blog for additional interviews, writing advice, and publication tips at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. If the blog or podcast have been helpful to you, or if you just enjoy listening, please consider donating. Visit writerwriterpantsonfire.com and click support the blog and podcast in the sidebar.